Okay there, saints. Tonight, Exodus chapter 39. As we go through this, you're going to think it sounds very familiar to when we went through Exodus 28. And it is in a sense. Um, in Exodus 28, they talked about all of these things and was asking them to make it. Here in Exodus 39, they're actually making it. So you see a lot of um, similarities through this um, portion that we're about to go through. As we've been going through this, let's just simply bow our hearts and we'll, we'll jump into the, the study. Father, we are so grateful for this, your word. We're so amazed to, as we've been looking at this tabernacle, to know that Jesus, you became flesh and tabernacled among us, that we see you. We see your, your body that you became incarnate. We see your ministry. We, we've seen your sacrifice. Um, Lord, we've seen the cost, truly, how, how much cost it actually took for our salvation, that uh, the grace is not cheap. It costs you everything. Now we're looking at, at in, in, in a sense, the, um, your position as, as high priest. We're so grateful, Lord, that you are our great high priest, that you are the one who's, that we go to. You're, you're the final authority over all things. And so, but as always, we're asking that you would knit our hearts through through this passage, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been going through this, <clears throat> um, we were there initially looking at the, the bones and the coverings of the tabernacle. And as, as we were doing that, we've, we've covered these, these last chapters that we're looking at. Um, in detail earlier. We looked at them in their very specific points, and now we're looking at them as far as generalities. Because we've already done the specifics, we're, we're looking at broadening our perspective on this, and so we're looking at these things in as Jesus Christ. So when we're looking at the, the boards and the, the coverings, we looked at Jesus and his incarnation, his body, why did God become a man, how did he tabernacle among us, then we begin to look at the, the, the services within the tabernacle, and we begin to see those, the issues that, that from where the, um, the mercy seat where God would meet with them, we then begin to look at how you look at the, the table of showbread, where the first of the I am statements on the bread of life, you go to the menorah, on the light of the world, you go to the altar, and as he was there with the altar, we recognized that that was that whole issue of access and protection where Jesus is on the door and on the good shepherd. And then we, we moved outside and we started looking at the, the bronze altar where, you know, that's where his death was. But it was also what his, through the death comes life to that who is it, the death is a substitute for. So we looked at that passage around the resurrection, the life. And then from that point, we looked at the labor, which was made of those bronze mirrors. And it's that path that you go from the altar into the tabernacle. And so we looked at he's the way, the truth. You look at it, it's like that mirror and 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 on the life. And then, of course, we looked at the, um, the whole issue of the court as we were there. And then we saw how it was like the vine, the abiding in the vine. This is where you go and you stay within that area, the abiding. So we looked at the, the, the tabernacle versus the I am statements and how they... The positioning here in Exodus lines up perfect to the positioning that Jesus does in the Gospel of John. And of course, last week we looked at the cost. And as we looked at the cost, we, we saw the incredible amount where it was, you know, um, over a ton of gold. There were, you know, three and a half tons of silver. And there were about two and a half tons of bronze. All this material went into the tabernacle. But of course, we looked at the cost that was for Jesus. And now what we're doing is we're going to be seeing... The, the, the ministry, the clothing, the types of the high priest. It says in Exodus 39, verse 1, of the blue and the purple and scarlet thread, they made garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place, and they made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. So now what we're seeing here is the garments for the priest 
and very specifically the garments for the heart, the high priest. So this is the, the garments of the ministries. And as we look to this garment of the ministry, what we're seeing here in a sense is that, that priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. And it's going to be an amazing thing. In verse 2, it talks about he made this ephod. And, and so we're going to be looking at the, um, these things in their little bit specifics, but more in their generalities as we go through that. So initially, he makes this ephod. And then in verse 8, he makes the breastplate that goes above the ephod. And then in verse 22, he makes the robe, which goes under the ephod. And then, of course, they make the hem on the robe in verse 24. And, of course, we'll be looking at that. And then when we get to verse 27, they made the tunics. In verse 28, he makes the turban. Verse 29, he makes the sash. And then in verse 30, they make that crown of pure gold. And so we want to look at those things and, in a sense, look at what these are in, in that ministry of Jesus Christ. But it simply begins this back in Exodus 39, verse 1. Of the blue, the purple, the scarlet thread, they made the garments of ministry. For ministering in the holy place, they made the holy garments for Aaron, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 2, he made the ephod. Of blue, purple, scarlet thread, a fine woven linen. And they beat the gold into thin sheets and cut it into threads to work with the blue, the purple, the scarlet thread, and the fine linen into the artistic designs. And they made shoulder straps for it, coupled together, and it was coupled together at its two edges, and the intricately woven band of the ephod that was, um, was on it was of the same workmanship, woven gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and the fine woven linen, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 6, they set the onyx stones, Enclosed in settings of gold, they were engraved. The signets are engraved with the names of the sons of Israel. Verse 7 says, He put them on the shoulders of the ephod as a memorial stone for the sons of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses. And now in verse 8, it says that he made the breastplate, artistically woven like the workmanship of an ephod, the gold, the blue, the purple, the scarlet thread, and of the fine woven linen. They made the breastplate square by doubling it. So in other words, they fold it up. Its span was its length and it spanned its width when doubled. And they set in it four rows of stone. A row with sardis, topaz, emerald was the first row. The second row, turquoise, sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. Thirteen, the fourth row, a barrel, and onyx and the jasper, and they were enclosed in the settings of gold in their mountings. And there were the twelve stones according to the names of the sons of Israel, according to their names engraved like a signet, each one with its own name according to the twelve tribes. And they made the chains for the breastplate at the ends like the braided cords of pure gold. They also made two settings of gold and two gold rings, and they put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. And they put the two braided chains of gold in the two rings on the ends of the breastplate. And the two ends of the two braided chains they fastened in the settings and they put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front and they made two rings of gold and they put them on the two ends of the breastplate on the edge of it which was on the inward side of the ephod. They made two other gold rings, put them on the two shoulder straps underneath the ephod towards its front right seam above the intricately woven band of the ephod and they bound the breastplate by the means of its rings to the to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord that it would be above the breastplate or that it would be above the intricately woven band of the ephod that the breastplate would not come loose from the ephod as the lord had commanded Moses. And in verse 22, he took the robe of the ephod um, of woven work of all blue, and there was an opening in the middle of the robe like the opening of a coat male with uh, a woven binding all around the opening so that it would not tear. And then verse 30 or 24, they made on the hem of the robe pomegranates, blue, purple, scarlet, fine woven linen, and they made the bells of pure gold as the bells between the pomegranates on the hem of the robe all around the pomegranates 
a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate, and all around the hem of the rope to minister as the Lord commanded Moses. And I want to pause there. I don't want to read it all the way through, but I want to stop here to, one, bring an understanding that within the high priestly garment that you see on the inside, there's going to be this blue linen robe. Um, just outside of that is what's going to be known as the ephod. And on the ephod, something unique. Verse 6 tells us that there's these two onyx stones. And the onyx stones go on top of the shoulders. In other words, it's sort of like, um, you know, bearing the weight to, to, to carry them, to support them. That they're on your shoulders, like the government is on his shoulders. It talks about Jesus Christ. He, he holds them up. He bears the weight. He bears them in. And so... I want you to note that you have these two onyx stones. Onyx is a black stone, and they engrave six names on each of the stones, and so you have this black stone that is sitting on top of the ephod. So these are the things that's going to be seen. The blue robe goes further than what the ephod does. The ephod then covers it, and then you have a breastplate, and that has those 12 stones, and within each of those 12 stones is engraved each one of the, the names of the children of Israel. But I want you to understand that when it comes to this, this breastplate that's there, in verse 15 it said they made chains for the breastplate at the ends like braided cords of pure gold. Verse 18 says the two ends of the braided chains, they fastened in the two settings and they put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod. And then, of course, they're, they're talking about the chains, the fastening. And then what it says in verse 21 says this, and they bound the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord so that it would be above the intricately woven band of the ephod that the breastplate would not come loose from the ephod. I want you to make a note of that, that they're holding it very particularly so that it doesn't come loose. There's a passage I do want you to be aware of found in Exodus 28 where all of this has been spoken of before. And we haven't done it until now, but in Exodus 28, verse 29, it does make this statement. So Aaron, speaking of the breastplate, shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. Understand that these stones that have each of the names as they're positioned over his heart and they're fastened so they don't move. They have to remain over the heart as he goes in. And I think it's a beautiful picture of what the high priest does. There's a, a ministry of intercession, a ministry of they have to be engraved. And I think how neat is it that when you intercede for someone, and in a sense, spiritually, you engrave their names upon your heart. They're etched in your heart. They're deep in your heart. They're not a surface thing. They're not just a name you read on a list, but they're deep, rooted, entrenched upon your heart, engraved upon your heart, that when you bring them to the Lord, it's, it's this, this power and compassion and joy and, and a desire for them for their very best. And, and so I love the heart of what just this garment for the high priest brings. Now, something of note when it comes to the high priest. Um, the, there in the scriptures, there are two priesthoods that are mentioned. And if you're familiar with it, the first one when we were going through the book of, of Genesis. And we were looking in Genesis chapter 14 where verse 18 talks where Abram came and he met this mysterious king of Salem. And as he does so, it simply makes this statement, and I want to read it to you. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, it says, Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And of course, he blesses him. Now, through that, it's a, just this beautiful thing of recognizing who this mysterious Melchizedek is. And as he goes through, he brings out those communion elements of both bread and wine, brings them out to Abram. And, of course, he then blesses Abram. And, of course, the scriptures teaches us that the, the lesser is blessed by the greater. 
Something unique happens that after Melchizedek is mentioned there in the book of Genesis, he's not mentioned again until there's a Psalm of David. And in Psalm 110, verse 4, Melchizedek is now brought up on the scene again. And for the most part, if it wouldn't be for the author of the book of Hebrews, no one would have a clue what this verse means. But it simply says this, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So I want you to understand that within the scriptures, they do talk about two priestly um, priesthoods, two, two different priesthoods. One is Melchizedekian, and the other, of course, as we we're looking at, is the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. And so Aaron becomes the high priest, the tribe of Levi becomes the, the priest that will minister. And so these are the two separate and distinct priesthoods that are there. And I want you to recognize that as these garments that we're talking about are multi-layered, the same thing holds true with the priesthood. They're multi-layered. Um, and, and so I want to share with you just a passage so that you can become aware of, of why the distinction of the two priesthoods and so if you want, I would just put a marker in the book of Hebrews. We're going to camp there for a little bit. Because like I said, if it wasn't for the author of Hebrews, we would be missing a lot of what the foundational issue of Jesus, not just as the priest, but as the high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. In Hebrews chapter 7, I want to start reading in verse 1. And I'm just going to read it through to verse 17. I'm going to pause just a couple of times as mention a few things, but I do want you to recognize this, where in Psalm 110, verse 4, it says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, but Hebrews 7, 1 says, for this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham also gave a tenth of all, first being translated the king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. So he's the king of righteousness, he's the king of peace. Where, of course, Psalm 85, 10, righteousness and peace have kept kissed. They, they join together, of course, in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And it says this about Melchizedek, verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, it doesn't necessarily say that, that Melchizedek was um, a Christophany or a Theophany. He was an actual man, but he was made like it. It doesn't talk about his genealogy. doesn't talk about the, the beginning of the priesthood. doesn't talk about his parents. It, in the sense, it says the Melchizedekian priesthood, the way that Scripture refers, is eternal. That it had no beginning, it had no end. Melchizedek had no beginning, Melchizedek had no end, according to the literal points of Scripture. And then it says that his priesthood, similar. No beginning, no end. And if that's the case, keep in mind that the Aaronic priesthood talks about a beginning. We found it right here, book of Exodus. This is the beginning of the Aaronic priesthood. We're also going to find out the Aaronic priesthood ends. That, that we are not under the Aaronic priesthood. And so we're not under their laws, and we're not under their regulations. And I think that's important for us as Christians as we walk. Keep in mind that the heart of God is revealed through the law. We want to walk the heart of God, but the law is not our righteousness. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. So I want you to understand that with this shifting of Jesus Christ, because he's of the tribe of Judah and not of the tribe of Levi, he can't be a Levitical priest. He can't be part of that Levitical priesthood. So what kind of priest is he? Well, Scripture says he's of a whole other priesthood. He's of the first priesthood that was mentioned, the priesthood to which Abram met, and this priest gave Abraham the communion elements. Abram gave him a tithe of all, and of course this Melchizedek blessed Abram. And now what happens is this, the scripture is going to teach us that without contradiction, the, the lesser is always blessed by the greater. So if you have Abraham, and inside Abraham is Isaac in his loins, Inside Isaac's loins is, is of course, you know, Esau and, and Jacob. And then you have Jacob, then you have the 12 tribes. So inside Abraham, if you will, 
the seed of Abraham, inside his loins, there is this potential seed of Levi. Levi is inside Abraham. Now, if Levi, if Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek, which it says here, then it says that Levi and this Aaronic priesthood, this Levitical priesthood, literally pays tithes into the Melchizedekian priesthood. You understand? It means it's greater. And Jesus is going to be part of this priesthood. So when it says he's a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, we see that Abraham, verse 2, gave him a tenth of all, first being translated king of righteousness, then being Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, verse 4, consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from people according to the law, that is, from their brother, although they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them, in other words, not derived from the Levitical priesthood, he received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. And here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, to whom it is witnessed that he lives. So keep in mind that at this point, because Melchizedek isn't spoken of of being dead, it says what? There's this point of his ministry that is eternal. And so as we look to this, it says in verse 9, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins when his father, of his father when Melchizedek met him. Verse 17, or verse 11 of chapter 7, it says this, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there of another priest who should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron. So he says, why in the Psalm 10 does David say, you are a priest forever according to this order of Melchizedek. You, you are, have this eternal priesthood. He said, why would there be this, this necessity of another priesthood if the Aaronic priesthood was so perfect, if the Levitical priesthood was so good. And so we, we see, I just love that heart, verse 11 again, therefore perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? So in other words, why write Psalm 110, verse 4? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Now understand that the law that came through the Aaronic priesthood is not the law that comes through the Melchizedekian priesthood. Notice what it says. If the priesthood, verse 12, being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. Speaking of Jesus Christ, he belongs to the tribe of Judah. And so it says he belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. Someone from Judah could not be part of the Levitical priesthood. And so we see verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And yet it is far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who is come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of endless life. Therefore, he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. It's a beautiful understanding that when we see there are two priesthoods, there's a reason to understand why there are two. 
One, they are around a priesthood is flawed. And if it wasn't flawed, there would be no need to come to another. Jesus Christ could not be part of that priesthood. But if he's going to be a faithful high priest, he has to be part of a priesthood. You can't just make one up. But God had already established one. No mother, no father, no beginning, no end. It's an eternal one. And of course, David then, led by the Spirit, says, You are a priest forever. He speaks that there is someone who's this priest forever, according to this first priesthood that came on the scene, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I want to take you through a little journey through, through Hebrews, and I want to speak and go a little bit quick, so bear with me as we go through. But in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and I want to jump to verse 10, it says this, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Now, it talks about a high priest. They have to be taken from among men. Why? Because a man knows the weaknesses of men. We, we understand each other innately. And so you can't have a priesthood that's not taken from among the men because he would know nothing of the weaknesses of men. So it has to be taken from men. Jesus Christ was what? Well, he was born in the flesh. He was born according to um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he wasn't in the flesh, but of the flesh. And so God becomes a man. But as he becomes a man, now, verse 2, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant, going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Jesus would say, you know, um, Father, if it be at all possible, let this cup pass from me. He had weaknesses. In fact, he was so weak that he couldn't even carry his cross. He understands what it is to be beaten and bloodied and have no strength. He understands weaknesses. But it says in verse 3, because of this, he is required, as for the people, also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. So the high priest, as we're about to see, there are duties of the high priest. We'll note those in just a little bit. But he has to offer sacrifices for sins. The, the, the issue being is the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the high priest first offers a sacrifice for himself, then he offers the sacrifice for the people. The amazing thing is Jesus Christ never had to offer a sacrifice for himself because he was sinless. His only sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, was himself, and that he only does for the people. It's an amazing thing to look at. So it says in verse 4 that no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. So you can't just say, oh, I'm a high priest. No, God has to call you into that position. God is the one who called Aaron into that position. God is the one who calls Jesus into the position through the Melchizedekian priesthood. So verse 5, so Christ did not glorify himself to become the high priest. He didn't say, hey, I'm, the, I'm just making myself the high priest. That's not what he did. He was called by God. And where it says, but he was, it was he who said of him, you are my son today, I've begotten you. He also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I want to jump down to verse 10, where it says this, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus just isn't a priest according to the order. He becomes the high priest. He becomes the chief priest according to this order of Melchizedek. So in other words, he reigns and rules not just as a priest, but as the chief priest, as the high priest. Now, in Hebrews chapter 6, um, I want to shift and I want to read verses 19 and 20 to you. It simply makes this statement. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Understand one of the duties of the high priest was to actually once a year in the Day of Atonement go through the veil, the second veil, into what is known as a holy of holies, and there he sprinkles blood upon the mercy seat. And of course, he doesn't look at it directly. He has to take this, this 
pan filled with coals and, and incense on it. And so smoke is coming up in front of him. And so he doesn't still see that glory clearly. He still sees it through the smoke, but he then places the blood upon the mercy seat. And so amazingly, as he goes in once a year, and he does it every single year, saying that every year you need a new atonement, you need a new atonement, you need a new atonement. So it was never done, because the next year he was going to go in again on the Day of Atonement, and he was going to atone for you again. But I love this because it says the forerunner, Jesus Christ, has entered for us, even Jesus Christ, having become the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So, so he now goes and enters the presence behind the veil, verse 19. He goes through the veil, and what happens is this. It's eternal. How amazing is that? So his work isn't this, this one-time thing, the daily thing, the momentary thing. It's an eternal thing that he does. Now, I want you to back up a little bit in Hebrews because I want to take you on to just a little bit of a journey to what the high priest is, how the high priest works. In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 17 and 18, let me read it to you. It says this. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brother, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. So as a high priest, his ministry is to come alongside and to aid us. It's to help us. It's to guide us. It's to do the work that we can't do. He's that mediator. He's the intercessor. It says in Hebrews 3, verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle, which means the, the, the sent out one, and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. So he talks about this is our high priest. He's the one who's able to aid us. He's the one who comes alongside of us. He is that faithful high priest. And so you know he's faithful because he doesn't have to make sins for himself. Now, with that, jump to Hebrews chapter 4 and look at verses 14 through 16. But it says this, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find help in the time of need. As we look to this, what we're seeing is that this priesthood of the Jesus is the high priest according to Melchizedek. He becomes this permanent forever priest. And so it's just this beautiful picture of what he does. Now, we've already read chapter 7 showing the, the Melchizedekian versus the Aaronic, how if the Aaronic was perfect, there wouldn't be need of another. But in Hebrews chapter 7, I want to jump down to verse 23 for just a second. Read down to verse 27. It says this. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. So what happened is after Aaron, his son was take over, after his son, another one would take over. And so there wasn't just one high priest. You'd always get another one and then another one and then another one where think about, you know, how churches are. There are a lot of churches that have this amazing pastor. They love the pastor. And then what? He either retires or he dies. And now what? Oh, now we're stuck with this next putz that has to come on down the road. What do we do? And, and you know, but they're, they're, they're prevented from continuing. Why? They get old and they retire. Something happens or they die. So we see here, verse 23, and there were many priests because they were present, prevented by death from continuing. But he, speaking of Jesus Christ, our high priest, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Nothing changes. The ministry that he began with is the ministry he's going to end with, the power of life. And so we see here, verse 25, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, 
undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins and then for the peoples. For this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. So amazing, we see the perfection of the priesthood that will continue forever. The perfection of the, 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 the law or the covenant that comes through the priesthood. One is just the covenant of life. One is the covenant of law, which is death. And then we see here that the amazing thing is he's able to um, recognize that this work is eternal. It's not temporary. Now, jump to chapter 8 of Hebrews for just a second. I want to read you what we've been reading a lot as we've gone through this. But in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now this is the main point of the things which we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. So not only is our high priest able to access through the veil, but he's gone through the veil. He's ripped out the veil. The veil is now torn into, destroyed, and now he's actually accessed heaven sitting at the right hand. This is amazing when you think about that. And so we see that he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. So as a high priest offers sacrifices, well, then Jesus has to offer a sacrifice. For if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer gifts according to law. And if he was here on earth, he'd have to be a Levitical priest, but he's not. Who, speaking of the Levitical priests, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Do you understand? They, they serve uh, not the true tabernacle, not the great tabernacle, but a copy of it. They, they, it's a shadow of it. Now, now, now think about the difference of the real thing versus a shadow. Let's just say that the, 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 the person that you love was away from you for months. And then all of a sudden you come and they, they come to the house and you see them. You meet them outside. Would you sit there and kiss a shadow on the ground because, oh, it's your shadow, it's your shadow. No, no, you get the real thing. You step onto the shadow, grab the real thing. That's where you share your affection. That's where you give your display of love. And I love this, the, the, the ironic, they serve a copy. They serve a shadow. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he, Jesus Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry as he's also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So we understand that Jesus had to have something to offer, and it had to be perfect. So what does he offer? Himself. So as we look to this one last passage I want to give you in the book of Hebrews, and that's in Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews chapter 9, I want to simply read to you verses 11 and 12, but it says this. Hebrews 9 verse 11, But Christ came as high priest, of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption." And it's just this beautiful picture to see that this is what Jesus has done. This is his high priest. So when it comes to speaking of the high priest, I want you to understand that Jesus, he does all the things that the high priest does. I want to share with you just a couple of things. If you're not familiar with the high priest or what he does or what his duties are, I want to give you just a couple of things to kind of keep you in line. And I want to share you what the ministry of the high priest is. And I want to show you how Jesus actually does those ministries. One of the things the high priest does is that in the, um, the, the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 19, verse 11, it makes this statement. Let me read it. Well, let me tell you what it does, and then I'll, I'll share. I'll read the, the passage. But it says this, that the, the high priest or the chief priest has authority over all the other priests in all matters concerning God. And so it says in 2 Chronicles, chapter 19, Verse 11, it says this, And take notice 
Amariah, the chief priest, is over you in all matters of the Lord. And Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, for all the king's matters, but also the Levites will be officials before you. Behave courageously, and the Lord will be with the good. So he talks about the, the high priest, the chief priest, and one of the things that he does is he has authority over all things in pertaining to all matters of the Lord. You have the political side, you have the religious side. And so within that, I think it's important for you to just make note of that. Now, I want to share with you just one passage. You know it well, but I'm going to share it with you anyways. In Matthew 28, beginning there in, in verse 18 through 20, let me read it to you because Jesus talks about this authority. And Jesus, in Matthew 28, verse 18, came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Amen. So Jesus now is talking to them and saying, Listen, I have authority over all things, and my authority over all things, I'm the one that am telling you, go make disciples, go baptize them, because I have been given authority, and now I'm, I'm passing on, and I'm directing you in all matters of the Lord. He also says this in John chapter 15, just a couple of verses I want you to be aware of. In John 15 verse 5, Jesus simply spoke this. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. He is the authority. He's the source. He's all that power. And then he goes on to say in verse 16 and 17 of, of John 15, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. But without me, you can do nothing. You understand the fruit we bear is in him. That your fruit should remain and whatever you ask the Father in my name. You understand the authority that he has. It has to be in his character that he may give you. These things I command you that you love one another. And so, of course, the, the greatest fruit, the greatest gift that we can all have, of course, is the gift of love. So I do want you to see that one of the things the high priest does, he has authority over all matters when it comes pertaining to God. That's Jesus Christ, our great high priest. He truly has authority over all matters that pertain to us and God. He's the one that gives us the dictates. Now, the other thing about the high priest is this. The high priest is a discerner of the will of God. We won't get there for a while, but eventually we'll come back to the book of Numbers. We're going to be doing Acts and then Le, um, Leviticus, and we're going to do another New Testament book, um, probably 1 Corinthians, and we'll come back into Numbers. And by the time we get to Numbers, it'll be a little while, a couple months, I'm sure. And as we get into Numbers, there's a, a passage in Numbers chapter 27. Let me read to you verse 21. It says this, He shall stand before Eliezer, the priest who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. So the high priest has what's known as the Urim and Thummim. The, the translation is light and darkness. And so most believe that it would be like a white stone and a dark stone. This is speculation, mind you. And that he would ask the Lord a question. God would direct his hand to which stone to pick out. And so if it's a black stone, don't go there. If it's a white stone, yeah, here it is. But, but literally the high priest in the book of Joshua had it narrowed all the way down from all of Israel, the millions of people, into just Achan himself. And all of a sudden, okay, Achan, what did you do? And so it was, it was a way of discerning the will of God. And ultimately, when it comes to the reality of Scripture, Jesus has that same understanding of the discerning of the will of God. In John chapter 14, verse 10, he makes a statement, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. The Father gives him the words. He speaks nothing of himself. He's able to discern the will of God because God speaks directly to him. 
in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. And I want to read down to verse 15, but it makes this statement. He says this, as he says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. However, when he, the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So as the high priest was there to discern the, the, the will of God, we understand that this is what Jesus was able to do as well. Uniquely, the high priest also was given the gift of prophecy. And I want to share with you a portion in the Gospel of John. In John chapter um, 11, verse 49 through 52 it makes this statement where the high priest Caiaphas says, listen, it's more efficient that one person dies and the whole nation perishes. So it makes this statement in John 11, beginning in verse 49, he says this, then one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. Verse 51 says this, Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for that nation only, but also that he would gather in one the children of God who were scattered abroad, so that he would die for the world. And so it's just this beautiful picture that we begin to see that as, as the high priest has this gift of prophecy, I want you to understand that Jesus also has that gift of prophecy. Remember, as we went through the book of Matthew, and we got to chapter um, 24, and the disciples came, and as they were, were sitting there on, on the, the mountain, in verse 3, he sat on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be, and what will be the signs of your coming? So Jesus prophetically just speaks out all this truth through the entirety of Matthew chapter 24. There's a beautiful passage, jot it down, in the book of Revelation. Revelation um, chapter... Where am I at? Chapter 19, verse 10. says, the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. So, so his work, he'd say, listen, I got to go to the cross. I got to die. I got to be given to the rulers. got to send me to the Gentiles. I'm going to die. Don't worry. On the third day, I'm going to rise again. He spoke all these things. And so the very testimony of Jesus Christ is that spirit of prophecy. Now, there is another ministry of the high priest, and I want you to be aware of it, actually found in the book of Numbers. And, and there in, in Numbers chapter um, 35, it, it makes a unique statement, and I want you to become aware of it, because in Numbers 35, I want to start reading in verse 26, and I'm going to read down to verse 38, because it talks about when someone kills someone that they didn't intend to. They call it a manslayer, not a murderer. There were, in the book of Joshua, they had set up what was known as cities of refuge. There were three on the eastern side of the Jordan, three on the western side. And so that all of these cities, no matter where you were in Jerusalem, you can get there on one day's journey. You get to that city of refuge. Because what happens is, if you accidentally kill someone, the avenger of blood, a kinsman of the person who died, would pursue you and kill you on top of that. So you would just get the, the just payment to your desserts. Well, let's just say there was a guy that was hiding in the bushes and you were cleaning out rocks and he was snooping on you. didn't see him. You just threw a rock, hit him on the head, and the guy dies. You didn't mean to do that. It was an accident. It wasn't intentional. It wasn't murder. So you could actually go to a city of refuge and say, listen, he was on my property snooping. I didn't see him. The only thing I did when I threw the rock, I ah, I knew someone was there, you know? And so I recognized, okay, the guy died, and I didn't mean to kill him. And so his, his, you know, his, his son's coming after me. What do I do? And so the city of refuge holds you. Now, uniquely is this. If you leave the city of refuge, the manslayer can kill you. But when the high priest dies, and this is incredible, 
you free the manslayer from the city of refuge. You're no longer bound to that city. You could actually go back to your home. And it says this, Numbers chapter 35. I want to start reading verse 26. Um, and so, well, let me back to the verse 25. It says, So the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled, and he shall remain there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But the manslayer at any time goes out from the city, the limits of the city of refuge where he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the city limits of, of the city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood, because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. So I want you to see here, that when it comes to this refuge that you're in, and I love the fact where in, in John 8, 36, of course, he says that the Son sets you free, you are free indeed, and you're free in that. But there's another passage I want you to be aware of that just kind of brings a little bit of clarity to this. In, in Hebrews chapter 6, and I want to simply read to you verse 18, it says this, um, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So we who have fled for refuge, because guess what? We're guilty. We're, we're guilty of, of literally the death of Jesus Christ. He died for us. It was my sin that put him on the cross, but it was unintentional. I love what Jesus did. When he was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He literally said, we're all manslayers. We're not guilty of murder. He didn't say, well, wipe them out because they're murderers. You know, they didn't know. They are manslayers. And so this whole thing of the city of refuge now holds true to us. And I love the fact that this is what is part of that ministry of the high priest, that when he dies, we literally are, are freed from the city of refuge. One other thing that I want you to be aware of what the, um, the high priest does. The high priest um, conducts the service on the Day of Atonement. He's the one that goes into the, the most holy place. And before he does, he has to sacrifice his bull for himself. Then he sacrifices something for the, a goat for the people. But I want you to realize that he's the one who goes in and conducts the service on the Day of Atonement. Now, this is where it's so powerful because he only atones for them on one day. And guess what happens? The next day, if you sin, you're not atoned for it. And you have to wait until the next year. And the next year, he has to atone for them again. And the next year, he has to. It's never enough. But he, this is his ministry to conduct the service on the Day of Atonement. So we see in Leviticus 16... It says this, verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And Moses, the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come in at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering. And he shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body, and he shall be girded with the linen sash and with the linen turban on his head, and these are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats of the sin offering, one as a ram as a burnt offering, and Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and then he should take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And so, and that's, of course, for the people. Now, I do want you to understand that when Aaron goes in, he makes this um, sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. He can't wear his priestly garbs. Everything that is beautiful about him comes off and he's only in pure white linen. He can't go in as this, this decorated. He comes in humbly before God to make atonement. And before that, he makes an atonement for himself. And then, of course, he makes atonement um, for the, the, the people. Again, one passage I do want to give you found in the book of, of Hebrews, chapter 9. I want to start reading in verse 26. I want to jump over to chapter 10 for just a second. 
But in chapter 9, verse 26 of Hebrews, it says this, then he would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of ages, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you understand? It's not the blood of bulls and goats. It's, it's himself. And then in, in chapter 10, verse 10 through 14, it says, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away sin. But this man, Jesus Christ, the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, his body, his blood, forever sat down at the right hand of God. That from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Verse 14, for by one offering... He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So it's such a beautiful thing as far as just looking to see, oh my goodness, the beauty of just what Jesus Christ in this ministry is. And now I want to focus on, now that we've done with the duties of the high priest, I want to just very, very quickly look at his garments. When it comes to the garments, I, I want to share with you just a, a passage. If you guys are familiar with... Joshua the high priest found in the book of Zechariah um, chapter 3 the, the, the first seven verses when Zechariah goes before the Lord says he's in filthy garments now he's the high priest and his garments are filthy but God says as Satan is accusing him don't worry I've taken off your filthy I put on clean you have to understand that our garments no matter how good we think we are in the ministry Joshua was the best of the best. He was the high priest. And as he stands before the Lord, the reality of his righteousness is, is they're filthy rags. And so he stands before the Lord just absolutely just horrible. And God is the one who sees it. So don't ever think of yourself as glorious and holy. Recognize that what Isaiah 61.10 says, that, that we are given this robe of righteousness by God. He gives to us this robe that we can put on just like he gave to Joshua the new clothes and so I just think it's important to recognize that the the, the clothing of the ministries as beautiful as they look um, as amazing as they are as we went through that that we look to this ephod and one of the things that I want you to recognize is this the stones that you you bear them upon your your shoulder you bear the weight of of their coming before the Lord, you bear the weight. They don't. You're, you're this mediator for them. I think it's important to make note of that. The other thing we talked about was the breastplate, where it had these, these 12 stones, each one, and it's fastened over the heart, and it's fastened so it does not move, where it said there in our text in verse 21, the breastplate would not come loose. It's fastened, and it's tied, and it has to remain there, these stones that are etched. And so I just want you to know how incredible it is that, that, that God sets us upon his heart. This is just a beautiful thing. And of course, that, that passage in 1 John chapter 4, not that we love God, but he loved us. We didn't love him first. He loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so, um, and if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. You know, so it's that whole ministry. And so... Um, when it comes to his love, Revelation 1, 5, 6, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, he's made us the kings and priests. We, we come because of his work. Now, I want you to recognize that when it comes to this, um, the ephod and the breastplate, we looked at those. The robe is unique. The robe is simply a blue. And if it's longer, it's plain linen. It, it has no other um, amazing things in it except the hemp. And that's why it says in verse 22, he made the robe of the ephod a robe work of all blue. But in verse 24, they made on the hem of the robe pomegranates of blue, purple, scarlet, fine woven linen. They also made bells of pure gold. And he put the bells between the pomegranates on the hem of the robe all around between the pomegranates and the bell and the pomegranate, the bell and the pomegranate all around the hem of the robe to minister in as the Lord commanded him. Now, Two things that make a note, because when it comes to the hem, the hem is actually a sign of authority. Real quick, I want to give you two passages to jot down. The first is 1 Samuel chapter 24. In the first 12 verses, what we recognize is this, is that, that um, there's a point where 
Saul is pursuing David. And as he's pursuing David, Saul takes 3,000 chosen men. He's pursuing David. But Saul goes into this cave to um, basically take care of business. And when he's in the cave, he doesn't realize that David and his men are hiding in the back recesses of the cave. And the guy says, hey, here, here's your enemy. Go kill him. Now, what David does is, is he takes a, a knife and he cuts the, the hem of the robe. The hem is a sign of authority. And this is why later on David regrets it. Because that, that he literally said, I, I, I literally took your authority. I, I dismissed your authority. I lessened your authority. And so David, you know, basically makes apologies. I shouldn't have done that. David is grieved because he did that. The other passage I want you to be aware of when it comes to the hammer, when it comes to the authority, is actually found in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew 23, verse 5, jot it down. It simply makes this statement. Where he says, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and they enlarge the borders of their garments. They make their hands big. You know, it's one of those things where it's not just this little hem. It's not just, it's big. You know, they're like Texans. Their hats have to be big. They can't be just a normal cowboy hat. Ask me this 10 gallon thing. And, and so, you know, to, to recognize this is what they did. They, they make the status of the authority. They literally try to make it larger than what it needs to be. So people are like, wow, look at your authority. And on top of that, as you make it of blue and purple, the blue dye was a very expensive dye. And so if you had a large, um, you know, uh, tassel on the end of it made it blue you just write man how much money did you have to pay for that it's like getting a gucci you know tassel and so um it's just one of those things where you you recognize that there's authority but they broadened it they made it larger and so within this hem um there was an authority and so you have the, the pomegranates and bells and pomegranate and bells the bells are unique because the bells actually are signifying that that you have to constantly be moving what happens when you stop? Bell stop. Why aren't you moving? They need to hear movement. They need to be aware that you're moving, constantly moving. And so it's just an amazing thing that with them, with this robe, it talks about the authority, talks about this movement. And then he does something unique. In verse 27, they made the tunics artistically woven of the fine linen for Aaron and his sons, a turban of fine linen, exquisite hats of fine linen, short trousers of fine woven linen, a sash of fine woven linen with the blue, the purple, the scarlet thread made by a weaver as the Lord had commanded Moses. So you have now this, this basically woven linen, finally, these white cloth. In other words, it's, it's, they're, they're light, they're breathable, you don't sweat in it. And so you have these tunics, the turbans, the sash, and then on top of that, we, we recognize that the, these tunics are just pure white for the most part. And they're humble and, and they're, they're, they're made. So the, the sash, of course, will go on top and, and, and tie it around the ephod. And that, of course, has those other threads to it. Now, as he, he ties it all together. In verse 30 now, they make a plate of a holy crown of pure gold. And they wrote on it an inscription like the weaving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And they tied it to a blue cord to fasten it above the turban as the Lord commanded Moses. And now you see the crown. The crown is basically, and as it says in verse 30, holiness to the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. Um, I do want to share with you, there's three passages in the New Testament. The first is in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. It says, you will receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. Mm. There's a crown of glory that we have that doesn't fade away. You cannot... Nowhere in Israel did they know where this high priest crown is. Guess what happened? Faded away in the, in the somewhere. It's no longer there. Our crown, however, does not fade away. In, in, in James 1, um, chapter, chapter 1, verse 12, he says, He will receive this crown of life. This is another one that does not fade away. We receive the, the crown of life. And then, of course, in 2 Timothy 4, 8, he says, Finally, there is laid up for me this crown of righteousness with the Lord. The righteous judge gives me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So we have the, this crown of glory. We have the crown of life. We have this crown of righteousness. And he just gets a crown of gold. And Jesus gets a crown of thorns. 
Absolutely amazing to see how you see the Lord saying, I will take on the humility. I will take on your sanctification. I will take the pain and I will give you the glory. I will give you the life. I will give you the righteousness. Absolutely amazing to look and see what our high priest does versus this high priest. He does everything. They do it for copies. He does it for the true. They do it temporarily. He does it permanently. All these things, I think it's so important to note that when it comes to the high priest, where it says there in the first verse, they made garments of ministry for ministering. It's all about this, this, this ministry of the high priest that Jesus Christ does. Just a glorious thing. And of course, we're going to be looking at this next week, but I do want to read verse 32 so that you can understand where we're at. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle, the tent, of meeting was finished. And the children of Israel did all the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Wow. They finally got it done. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Father, we are so grateful for this word, um, your heart revealed through this. We are asking, Lord, that you would continue to guide us, that you would lead us, that you would impart to us an understanding of the beauty of the ephod, the beauty of the breastplate, the beauty of the robe and the hem and the linen trousers and, and that, that, that turban and the sash and the crown. Lord, the beauty of this garment of ministering. How amazing, Lord, that, that it all points to Jesus. You are truly the, the more perfect high priest. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for all that you've given to us. Thank you that you have given us access You've given us righteousness. You've given us life. That it's not just a, a momentary one day out of the year to go into it to say, now you're, you're good for a moment. Don't mess it up. And of course we do. But Jesus, you tore down that veil and went in with your own blood. You're sitting there and you tell us to come boldly to the throne of grace. That is the high priest we serve. Thank you, Lord, that you are not of the order of, of Aaron. You're not or of the, the Levitical, but you are the Melchizedekian, the more permanent, the eternal priesthood. We worship you, Lord, for what you show us, what you've shown the author of Hebrews to help guide us in this truth, Jesus, of the purity and the wonder of your ministry as high priest. Continue in our hearts with these truths we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.